All right. Good evening. If you have a Bible, why don't you turn to Second John, please? We're going to look at Second John, verse four through six. The message entitled is "Passion for Truth and Love." John has expressed his love in the gospel for the church and the believer in the opening salutation of the first three verses. Now John gives the, um, his response over the spiritual life of the church community and is characterized by three things here in verse 4 through 6. Let me read our text for us. He says, I rejoice greatly that I have found some of your children walking in truth as we receive commandments from the Father. And now I plead with you, lady, not as though I wrote a new commandment to you, but that which we had from the beginning, that we love one another. This is love, that we walk according to the commandments. This is the commandment, that as you have heard from the beginning, you should walk in it. This response of John over the spiritual life of the church community is characterized by the following. First, we have the passion, the passionate joy in verse 4. Second, you have a passionate plead in verse 5. And third, you have a passionate principle given to the community of God's redeemed in verse 6. He begins with the passionate joy. Notice John had encountered at the present time, some Christians from the church and found them walking in truth. I rejoice greatly to have found some of your children walking in truth. The body of the letter actually begins right here if you look at it. The practical section comes first by way of exhortation in verse 4 through 6. The doctrinal comes second by way of warning in verse 7 through 11. The usual order is doctrine first, followed by the practical. So doctrinal always comes first. God always tells you what he desires you to do. And then he gives you the ability to do it by the command. Notice the perspective for the interpretation is twofold here. Some think... John was referring to some believers from the church that he had encountered elsewhere. I believe that probably this is the correct one. The word found is in the perfect tense, showing his information remained true. First, uh, verse 7 um, will confirm this and, and add to it. Others think John was referring to some who uh, continued to walk as opposed to those who had been carried away by the deceptive heresy reported by traveling missionaries. But this might hold truer to the third epistle of John as he writes about Diotrephes in chapter, well, there's only one chapter, Third John, verse 9 through 12. So again, part of the thing about these letters, we only have like a one-sided um, telephone conversation. We get one side, we're figuring out because of what's being said or answered. Notice the personal joy of John was not for himself, but for those he found walking. The believers who walk their talk receive the firsthand benefit of having God's approval and delight over their life. Uh, what parent doesn't delight hearing that their children are walking in the way that they raised them and taught them? What a delight it is. When someone commends you, I saw your boy the other day. Boy, you should have raised a gentleman. And you just delight in it. That's God. This is John. 
the believer has access to the throne of grace, as you know, at all times. Uh, Hebrews 4.16. The believer has nothing to hide because he can hide nothing. God sees all things, so he invites us to come and to lay everything before him that we may be right. We're to be growing, developing, and maturing in our walk in the Spirit. It's an ongoing process that never ends till you and I go home. No one grows straight up, but you should be growing forward. <laughs> That's important. The believer will be used by Jesus as his instrument to reach others as you're growing. Because the whole goal is to be so appreciative and so thankful to God what he's done for you that you want the same thing to be occurring and happening in the life of others. Notice the proclamation of joy by John was not simply an exaggeration based on emotions and feelings here. This was a response brought about by the Holy Spirit to those who were walking in truth, yielding their lives by their own free will. God does not compel us in terms of a forceful uh, authority over us. But he gives us a free will to make decisions. He said to Adam and Eve, of these, this fruit, you can eat anything. Of this one fruit, you can't eat not one thing. Very, very clear they had a free will. And he says, if you eat this, you'll be fine. If you eat this, you're going to have consequences. And God was true to it. Now, if there was no free will, the warning is absolutely useless, right? And the obedience would be absolutely a fake delight, right? Because I forced you to obey. So for love to be valuable, there must be a free will. Which of you men tell your wife, if you don't see you love me when I walk in every day at work, I'm going to punch you in the mouth. And then she does it. Do you really think she loves you? Does that turn you on? Of course not. But as you walk in and you're not worth it and she says, I love you, hon. Then it's valuable, right? That's God. That's the believer. The word rejoice there means to be glad and, or to thrive with the idea of celebration and what he had observed in the past. This is the arrow's passive. He had marked this. The word greatly means exceedingly beyond measure. John was overflowing with pleasant satisfaction at those who were abiding in obedience. Once again, as a parent, what greater joy do you have as you see your child go forward and to grow and to mature and to be an asset to community, to society? How much more in the Lord? The word is found only here and in Third John, verse 3. The fruit of the Spirit, you know, is agape love, but the fruit, the first manifestation of agape love is joy. Kara, right here, Galatians 5.22. So, the fruit of the Spirit is singular, and the first manifestation is joy. When we are filled with the Spirit, we're walking in the Spirit, we're in line with God, then joy should be the very first thing we have in our heart. Because of all that God has done for us. Sin has separated us. Sin had destroyed and scarred our life. And he has forgiven us and made us new. Who in the world could not be joyous over that? A new birth. This joy is due to who we are in light of Jesus. Atonement. His work. This is not to what we have externally. As money, material things, but what he has done internally to us. He has transformed us from the inside out. When you became born again, you, 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 you weren't any different than a photograph. You take a picture, you look the same as you did before you were unborn again. But something has changed inside. And because of the change inside, the transformation, now your conduct, your actions, the way you think, the way you speak, the way you act, is very evident to others. Though you look as the same person, you're not acting like the same person. They're trying to figure out what's happening, but you know it's the internal transformation of the work of the Spirit of God. Though nothing has changed on the outside. In fact, you're going to keep getting older. You're going to keep getting more wrinkles, less hair, more gray, 
more aches and pains. But you're being renewed day by day by the Spirit of God. The personal identity notice of the individual is stated as your children. The same as in the salutation, Christians. The term for children is the same as in verse 1, technon, indicating they were the offspring of God, the family of God. This evident life is not of the natural man. We were born of flesh and blood one time and then of the Spirit of God as we repented of our sins. Two different births. Jesus demonstrated that to Nicodemus. The word appears five times in 1 John and three times in 2 John. It's key. The plural pronoun your identifies the lady in verse 1, the church. Jesus begets children by his word and the Holy Spirit. No pastor, no preacher, no evangelist ever saves anybody, ever begets anybody. You and I can beget children. But no one can beget anyone in their new birth. It is the Spirit of God and the Word of God that brings about that new birth and God's sovereign work. Jesus adds to the church daily, such as should be saved. He builds this church, not any man. Notice the personal observation was their conduct, they were walking. The word walking, peripateo, means simply to make progress. The word is in the present participle implying a continuous pattern of healthy spiritual life. 1 John 1, 7. When you bring your child home and he just lays there. But then he begins trying to roll around. The first time he rolls around, you blow your Look, look, did you see that? And then he starts crawling. Then when he takes his first steps, it's kind of wobbly. You know, he sits there. And, but then the stronger he gets, then all of a sudden he's walking. Straight. He, he sees something, his eyes are focused, and he just goes there. This is the word. The idea is that of making one's way and advancing forward, having direction. When you and I were in the world, we were going every which way, depending on what type of circles you hung around with. You hung around a bunch of party animals or drinking or drugs or whatever, you fill in the blank. You, you live within this capsule of ideology and certain people, and, and, and it was a very small world. But it was all the world we knew. And all of a sudden now, as a Christian, you've got a whole different world that is so bigger than the one that we lived in. In fact, it encompasses all those other worlds that people live under through the desire to see them saved. Because you know how limited your walk was in your life in that type of life. It was very small. It was very deceptive and destructive. And to continue to walk in that lifestyle would only bring further pain, further destruction. And only the grace of God can turn us around. I've told you about my friend, Joey Hernandez. You know, he, um, um, he was in drugs and prison, just a lot of stuff. And his mom... Um, died and I did her funeral and he came to the Lord and I'd been visiting and praying for for 40 years. And he came to the Lord and he's walking strong. He goes to Pastor Joe's church because Joey, Joe and myself, we all partied together. That's all we did. Joe Celia, myself, we got saved. Joey didn't, but here it is 40 years later. Maybe there's someone that you've given up on. You've been praying 40 days. And you say, wow, he, there's no way. Well, keep praying. Never know. This is opposed to merely 
meandering aimlessly. Now you, you know where you're walking. You have the parameters. You know your goal. You know all of this. Before we just kind of meander. You know why a river meanders, right? It's looking for the softest soil. When it comes to hard soil, go to the easy soil. That's what we do in life. When we can have our way, we go there. You come across some heart, we meander. We're just looking around. Okay, let's see what do I want. Oh, she looks good. Oh, he doesn't look bad. Oh, wow, I want some of that. And then, you know, we're just all over the place. But now you're a Christian. Now you know exactly where you're walking. You know who your master is. You know what's best for you. You know what he wants. You're very clear. But you're also aware of all the distractions, all the temptations, all the lures. This is the key word for the epistle of the Ephesians. The walk of the believer in Ephesians 3 verse 1 all the way to chapter 6 verse 9, that section. The standard of their conduct is said to be in truth. Notice that. Alicia is found four times in the first three verses here of the epistle. It means genuinely in reality and authentically. The word is being used in our context for the truth of the gospel. You're walking in terms of God's revelation, his standard. If he calls you, he enables you. The clear application is opposed to the Gnostic heresy or embracing them in fellowship. The Gnostics had a corrupted philosophy and theology. They were deceivers. That which had made them alive in Christ from being dead in trespasses of sin was the gospel, Ephesians 2, 1 and 2. The gospel is as powerful today as it was back then. It has never lost its power. The gospel is not limited to only a certain amount of, uh, of certain kinds of sin or a certain amount of sins. The gospel is all powerful to forgive, to turn around, to renew a person's life. There's nothing like it. Notice John relates the evidence of walking in truth according to the past commandment of God as we receive commandments from the Father. The apostle includes himself as having been a recipient. Notice the plural form we indicates John and those he has mentioned and is mentioning. The statement reveals the apostle in the light of his humility here. He's not exalting himself. He's seen himself as one of many children of God. Regardless of what God uses you, how much he uses you, or how long you've been walking with God, we're all children, sons, and daughters of God. We all have equal standing before God. We may have different callings, different gifts, different positions that God's going to give us, but we all stand on the same level before Jesus Christ as sinners saved by God's grace. No one can boast above another one. The word receive, lambano, means to take with the hand, to lay hold, and to carry away for oneself. It's used of receiving the revelation from God in a particular moment in history. It is used for not receiving the one who abides not in the doctrine of Christ, being void of God in verse 9 and 10. It is used for the anointing of the Holy Spirit of truth, receiving to teach the believer truth in 1 John 2.27. It's something that you receive willfully and joyously and of your own accord. Notice the apostle is specific in what it is that he and the others had received. Commandment. Simply means an order or a charge here. It's found three times in the singular, verse 4. Verse 5 and verse 6, the word appears one time in the plural at the middle of verse 6. Both forms are key to the first epistle of John appearing 14 times. These command or commandment is in the imperative dealing with the heart of the moral and ethical standard for life contained in the gospel. This is one of the problems with the emergent church today. 
they seem to think that there's no absolute objective truth that we can learn from in the Bible. Really? Then why are we called to obey? Why are we called to study? So everything is subjective and we just hang out and just dialogue and there's nothing we can be absolutely sure about. Why did God give us his word then? And where's one verse to back that up? Nowhere at all. But it does go along with the political correctness of relativity today. Subjectivism. But the Bible rejects it. This commandment is unable to be obeyed by the natural man. The one who's not born again. God never commands somebody to love his neighbor as himself. He can't. It's impossible unless you're born again. The commandment of God is able to be lived out through the Holy Spirit, through the new birth only, the new divine nature that Peter tells us we have. The apostle identifies, notice, their source from the Father, reference to the first person of the Trinity. The Old Testament usually identifies him as the word, the word of God, Elohim. The first word of Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God, Elohim, the plurality. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. You have the Trinity right there in the first verse. The manner of expressing the Trinity appears in the very first verse of the Bible. What a great place to put it. Three distinct persons, identical in deity, being God, co-equal, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Father is the source, Jesus the Son is the channel, the Holy Spirit the agent. All three involved in creation, in salvation, in redemption. Spurgeon said it is an unfortunate thing for the Christian to become melancholy. If there is any man in the world that has a right to have a bright, clear face and a flashing eye, it is the man whose sins are forgiven him, who is saved with God's salvation. If that's all that God did for us, saved us, and did nothing else after salvation, we would be most fortunate. Because that means that you would be in heaven when you die, rather than hell. Now, if that doesn't put a smile on your face and joy in your heart, something's wrong. <laughs> because the people in hell tonight, they don't have joy. It's just the opposite. Because they chose to go to hell. Wow. What a joy I have when I see individuals in the church continue to walk in Christ through the difficult times. Or when I run into people in the street or at a market. And it's funny because, you know, when you're in the church, you see people and you identify with the locality. Sometimes when people see you at a store or something like that, hey, I'm at, and you're going... Okay, where do I know this person from? You know, because you don't, everybody knows who you are, but you don't know everybody, you know? And then you realize, and then there's some people that, you know, you, from way back when we first got born again, and you don't see them for years, and then you see them, and what a joy that they're walking with God, and then what a heartache when I run to others, and you know, eventually we're tired, oh, good, doesn't I, 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 are you still walking with God? No, 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 and you just, oh, such a heartache. And you just encourage him, got to come back, man. Come walk with God and everything. Because everybody knows what happens if you don't walk with God. Peter says our, 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 the end of our life is twice worse off than it was before. We're to abide in the study of God's word and prayer. You know, we go through the severe testings and trials and growing pains and all that, but it's all worth it for the power of the Spirit. I rejoice when I see the fullness of God's grace over their life and I see people, you know, go through difficult things and I just see the joy of the Lord and, and how God strengthens them and it's an encouragement to me. Many of you are a great example to me and to the staff. The things you go through, the things that we pray for you. 
First Corinthians 1 Corinthians 1.9 says, God is faithful who, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Moreover, it is required of the steward that he be found faithful. First Corinthians 4, 2 Corinthians 4.2 The scriptures are very clear about our walk in Christ. The truth of the gospel were to walk by faith, not by sight. Our sight can deceive us. Not by emotions or feelings. Paul says in Romans 13, 13, Let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry or drunkenness, not in lewdness or lust, not in strife and envy. Now, I don't know what the emergent church does with that when they say that elders can drink and they can have beer bashes with their elders and pastors. When the requirements for elders and bishops and Timothy and Titus is clearly against that. How do you rationalize it? How do you do it? And if the leadership is drinking, what do you think is happening in the pews? How do you tell them no? There's a big problem. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God. By the pulling down of the strongholds, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ, and being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. So we're in this warfare. The testings, the thoughts, the entrapments, they're all there. And you put on that whole armor, and you're filled with the power of His might. And you walk down even this pilgrim's progress, you know, all these testings and all these things and go on. And you're moving forward in the warfare. Walk in the spirit, you should not fulfill the lust of the flesh, is the promise, Galatians 5.16. If we live in the spirit, let us also walk in the spirit, Paul says in Galatians 5.25. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord Jesus Christ... Beseech you to walk worthy of the calling by which you were called. Philippians 4.1. If he calls you, he enables you. You as a parent know when you've enabled your child to do things because you know that you've taught him. And when you give him a command to do something because you know he's able to do it. And if he doesn't do it or do a good enough job where you know he can, you say, what happened? And he gives you a lame excuse. You don't receive that because you know better. Well, how much more God? He's made us new. He's made us his children. As you have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, he says. And so John had a passion. He was passionate in his joy for those who were walking in the truth of the gospel. What a joy. That should be your passion and mine. That you walk in the Lord, that you're your brother, your sister, whether in your family or your friends, whoever it is, that they continue to walk. Secondly, you have the passionate plea here in verse 5, and the petition was nothing new regarding um, the present. He says, and now I plead with you, lady, not as though I wrote a new commandment to you. And so the personal request of John is urgent in nature uh, for them. And, and, uh, and, and then the personal pronoun I here portrays John as a humble servant again, I. He is the last surviving apostle of Jesus Christ at this point. He is the aged apostle. It was Paul in Ephesus, Timothy, and we're told that John went there. And yet, Ephesus left their first love. Three great pastors. It certainly wasn't their fault, was it? And yet the warning is there. And though he is the elder, he does not demand, but by way of exhortation. The model he modeled here was going uh, in that of humility and love. Notice in verse 5, still the personal request of John is not his own command, but is a commandment of the Father. The word plead means to entreat, to beg, or to beseech. Has the idea of supplication in view of need and correctness and what is being asked it's found only this time in the epistle and the personal pronoun you is identified by the word lady in other words the idea of the lady became clear in the salutation she is the church not a woman there's always the argument does this refer to a lady a literal woman or does it refer to the church 
The term for lady is a metaphor for the church in this aspect. There are many metaphors such as the bride, the army, the family, so on and so forth. Now notice the Apostle John is writing to the church at Ephesus without any doubt. He was the pastor. He's probably writing to the church there. And the personal explanation reveals the extent of John to be irreproachable. In verse 5 there, the apostle says he was not writing a new commandment. The word new kinos means reason and time or character. He was not adding to the words of Jesus. The word is in the negative. This commandment is not new. He was not putting himself as the authority above the scriptures already given. The Gnostics possibly were saying that John had changed or distorted the gospel message. When in fact they had done the very same thing themselves. One thing about deceivers is they always blame others of the very same thing they do. Politicians do the same thing. <laughs> They're great at that. The apostle was not speaking about commandments like the Ten Commandments in the law. The law could never make a person perfect. Paul makes that very, very clear in Romans. The law could, only, could never justify a man or a woman. The law could only accuse a man of being a lawbreaker guilty before God. Every one of us know that we deserve at least ten tickets a day. I know I'm due. It's been about 18 years. And I know I'm due. We break laws all the time. And then when they pull those over, I can't believe him. The other guy was going faster than me. What does that have to do with you? The commandment in our text is singular. The commandment of love. Notice the petition was merely a reminder regarding the past. But that which we have had from the beginning that we love one another. The past commandment from the beginning stands in sharp contrast to the one they had indicative of the word but here. The apostle once again includes himself by the personal pronoun we. I love the epistles because Paul and others always include themselves with the people they're writing to. They're not looking down. They're not exalting themselves, but they always include themselves as one with them. The apostle himself has been the recipient of this very commandment. The past commandment is said to have been theirs from the beginning. The word beginning means origin, the commencement of anything it appears two times in the epistle, verse 5 and verse 6. It's used to indicate the commencement of anything, depending on the context. The phrase we had refers to the disciples and the words of Jesus. Go back to John 13, he speaks about it. Verse 34, 35, chapter 15, verse 12 and 17, that commandment of love. The beginning is a reference to the beginning of their new birth through the gospel. Prior to that, they were Hebrews under the law, looking for Messiah. Then they were born again. They were completed Jews, if you will. They, had, they were no longer looking for Messiah. They had found their Messiah in Jesus Christ. They then were able to understand the word of God. They were able to obey the word of God. And they were able to have a desire to please God. Because of the new birth. Prior to that, people can be religious. They can do ritualistic things. But they have no way of knowing or understanding the word of God. Or have a relationship with God. The past commandment has stated clearly that we love one another. This was given to the twelve apostles, as you know, by our Lord as an imperative command. It is reciprocal love for one another. It's not just one-sided. This is what's wrong sometimes in marriages. You know, it's a one-sided love. 
Either the man is demanding from the wife her love in certain ways and that while he's not giving any. Or the other way around. It's a love that's reciprocal. Love is initiated and love responds. It goes both ways. It's a mutual affection and desire to please one another. And that's the same with us towards our Lord Jesus Christ. It is not one-sided. Notice the commandment is fulfilled by our yielding to the fruit of the Spirit, as we mentioned before in Galatians 5.22. It is the life of Christ in us, the hope of glory. It is through the person of the Holy Spirit. It is Christ who lives in us now as we live the crucified life. The commandment is impossible for the unbeliever again to obey or to fulfill. They are again dead in trespasses and sins. Their heart is deceitfully wicked above all things, Jeremiah 17.9. Their love is for self, Ephesians 5.29. The command in Ephesians 5.29 says, Husband, love your wives as you love yourself. He says, take a lesson from the bad way you love yourself, the negative way, the sinful way. And if you would love your wife the way you love yourself, you would please her and God. Incredible. The commandment can be grieved and disobeyed by the Christian by choosing to walk in the flesh. I said that walk in the spirit, that you should not fulfill the lust of the flesh, again, Galatians 5.16. The flesh lusts against the spirit, the spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary one to the other, so that you cannot do that which you wish, Ephesians 5.17. So here you have again the old man, the new man, in conflict. You got this airplane that pulls up to the gate and they pour people in there. Then they have the nerve to put all kinds of baggage underneath. And then they run it down this runway with these thrusters. And that thing is heavy and it takes off. Because there is a law that is higher than the one of gravity. The law of aerodynamics. It supersedes, it cancels out, it overrides that law of gravity. And as long as that principle of aerodynamics is in full thrust, that heavy metal plane with people and baggage will stay in the air. But if that pilot thrusts those handles back, it will quickly... If he says, well, I think the law of gravity is gone. Really? You're walking in the spirit. You may say, well, yeah, I, I, it's pretty good. You know, flesh is gone. Really? Pull back the throttles a little bit. It'll bite your head off. The old man's there. Spurgeon shared with his congregation one time. It's reported that Mr. Wheatfield was one day asked by a partisan. Do you think that we, when we get to heaven, shall see John Wesley there? No, says George Whitfield. I do not think we shall. The questionnaire was very delighted with the answer. But Mr. Whitfield added, I believe that Mr. John Wesley will have a place so near to the throne of God that such poor creatures as you and I will be so far off as to be hardly able to see him. Spurgeon then com commented, as I read such remarks, I have said to myself, by this I know that he must be a Christian, for I saw that he loved his brother Wesley, even while he so earnestly differed from him on certain points of doctrine. Wow. That person's born again. <laughs> People are always looking for something new and there will always be plenty and clever teachers to present something new. It'll take off like wildfire in the church. I'm amazed all the time. Mark Twain said, a lie will get all the way around the world before truth gets its boots on. That's false doctrine, ladies and gentlemen, inside the church. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their 
own desires because they have itchy ears, they will heap up to themselves teachers. 2 Timothy 4.3 Think about it. Look at the lies that are propagated by the liberal media about morality, education, homosexuality, marriage, childbearing, everything else. The educators, everything. It's amazing. Simple, simple lie that has shaped and molded our world for the last 100, 116 years. Overpopulation. Are you kidding me? Every country in the world is under the recovery of population, except for the United States. Have you ever flown in a plane? You see people head to head, arm to arm? No, they're bunched up like rats in cities. Everything else is empty. Take two states. We just passed up the limit for Texas. Very little. Take two states in the United States. The whole world's in there. The rest is empty. Where's the overpopulation? That lie has shaped and molded marriages and people for the last hundred years. Amazing. And we can go on with so many lies that are perpetrated by the educators and politicians. Because they want control. There have been many weird doctrines that have come through the church in the last 30, 40 years. Positive confession that, you know, bases its whole thrust and focus upon material wealth and, and the ability to be healed and it's your faith and all of this stuff. So they invent little phrases like faith in faith and seed faith and your little gods and all kinds of weird stuff. And so they can teach stuff over television. I remember um, um, Jan Crouch and Paul Crouch, are called Pixie and Dixie. Um, they, they, I mean, I heard them one day back 20 years ago or so, you know, that they, this guy just lowered a microphone down this hole and, you know, he could hear people yelling in hell and everything and they're making a big to-do. What are you smoking? Amazing. The shepherding doctrine to rule over people. So they rule over your life. They decide for you. You, I'm, you got saved under my ministry, so I'm your elder. So you ask me permission if you can buy a car, a house, who you can date, who you cannot. Get out of my face. And people allow that. Signs and wonder by the late John Wimber, taught here in Fuller Cemetery with Wagner, who held the chair of McGavern. By the way, Wagner just um, just died a while back. Able to see auras around people, able to teach people to to heal, and even raising the dead. They said you have the barking in the spirit like animals and flying around and drunk in the spirit. Everybody dogpiles. How interesting, men and women. Oh, that really just glorifies God. That church probably grows by leaps and bounds. It's all flesh. The purpose-driven life of Rick Warren. What a sham. Corporate principles. Ecumenicalism. Now we have the postmodern emergent church movement. Moving from objective truth to subjectivism, relativism, not making judgments, politically correct. So we offend no one. The stepping stone is the friendly church to the emergent church. Listen to Jeremiah 23, 28 through 30. The prophet who has a dream, let him tell the dream. And he who has my word, let him speak my word faithfully. What is the shaft to the wheat, says the Lord? Is not my word like a fire, says the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces? Therefore, behold, I am against the prophets, says the Lord, who steal my words, every one from his neighbor. Woe to the teacher, the pastor, the evangelist who corrupts God's word and deceives God's people and fleeces God's people rather than feed God's people. Read Ezekiel 34 for one. 
Matthew 23, woe to you Pharisees and scribes. The practice of God's love is not an option, but a command. Love of God is the never substitute doctrine or justification to embrace false teaching. Today we say, well, let's just love one another. Let's not fight about doctrine. No, let's fight about doctrine. And once we establish doctrine, then we'll be able to love in God's love. Love of God confronts, makes judgments, and makes people accountable because they want them to honor God. They want the best for them. The church of Laodicea is a lukewarm church. Revelation chapter 3, 16 through 17. Compromises. Waters down. Those who are sinning rebuke in the presence of all that the rest also may fear. 1 Timothy 5, 20 says. That's, that's a last stage of someone who's rebellious in the church. I've never had to do it, but I'm, I'm supposed to be willing to do it if I need to. Preach the word, be ready in season, out of season, convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching, 2 Timothy 4.2. This testimony is true, therefore rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, Titus 1.13. Speak these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority, let no one despise you, Titus 2.15. Jesus said, if you love me, Keep my commandments, John 14, 15. You think Jesus is interested in doctrine? Absolutely. Is it contrary to love? Absolutely not. If you love God, you will obey his word. You will know his doctrine because it keeps you on the straight and narrow. It keeps you from the pitfalls. John had a passionate plea that they love one another. Notice thirdly, you have the passionate principle in verse 6. The practical relationship of love and obedience. This is love, that we walk according to his commandments. The apostle John knew how easy it is for people to intellectualize Christian love. So he emphasizes the main subject Literally, this is the commandment. It's love. Some people emphasizing love while being devoid of obedience. Other people rationalize love while refusing to make judgments on what is right and wrong. And still others reason that love is superior in all doctrinal commands instead of seeing them as the foundation and boundaries of love. The plural pronoun here, we, it's emphatic, identifying all believers, making the transition from the 12 to all the children of God. The Apostle John notice describes the love of God in a very specific manner. He says that agape love is genuine when a person walks according to the commandments. It's in the plural and not limited to the commandments of loving one another. The commandments encompass everything taught in the New Testament. All his commandments. He is simply saying that if there is no obedience to the word of God, then it is not really the love for God. You as a parent, if your son or daughter loves you, you absolutely expect their obedience. If they don't obey you, the first thing you say, why would you do that? Don't you love me? The evidence of love for someone is you do what is going to be pleasing to them. What's best for them. It must begin with our love for God. The vertical axis again. That comes first, then the horizontal we love God because he first loved us, 1 John four nineteen. It must be a carryover value to my love for the word of God. If I love God, I'm going to love his word. And if I love God and his word, then I'm going to love my neighbor as myself. 
doesn't mean we won't have differences. It doesn't mean we're not going to have problems at times. But we deal with it in the grace of God, through the word of God, through the love of God. It must ultimately be manifested towards people, the people of God, the horizontal. You can't just say, well, I love God. I, my only problem is people. Oh, no, you're, you, you're, you're inconsistent. The practical relationship between the command of God and conduct is given. Notice, this is the commandment, that as you have heard from the beginning, you should walk in it. So the Apostle John relates the common relationship between hearing and walking in truth and in love. Hearing was how they received the commandments in the beginning. The word hearing, akuo, means to be endowed with the faculty of hearing opposed to being deaf. The idea is with understanding, comprehension, to be able to apply. The word gives us the word acute or keen hearing. The word is found 191 times in the New Testament, 14 times in 1 John, and only one time in 2 John. Walking was the evidence of understanding and comprehending what they had heard. It's the application of what you grasp and understand. The personal pronoun you again is emphatic for the believer. You, you have been born again. You who have understanding. You who have the Holy Spirit. You who have a relationship with Jesus Christ. John here is not being redundant or attempting to be wordy, but is exacting a very careful delineation of the heart of the Christian life. The Gnostic professed, but were not living what they professed. The Gnostics used the same biblical words, but they meant something different in view of their philosophy of good and evil. This is some part of the problem that we have with Calvinists and Calvinism. They use the same words that you and I use, but they mean different things. They redefine the words from the biblical definition. You can't do that. The neo-Orthodox did the same thing. They had their tie with neo-Orthodox. The emergent church has their ties with neo-Orthodox that came from Germany. It's neither neo-new nor is it orthodox straight. It's a contradiction in itself. The Gnostics based understanding of God on special knowledge, not on spirit transformation. We are trusting the work of the Spirit to transform us. We're not Christians because we're smart. <laughs> we're Christians because we've been convicted by the Spirit of God and we've responded in repentance to His grace. The Gnostics walked in the flesh. The believers were to walk in love. The Apostle is consistent in the time frame they had heard in the past, they were to walk in the present, and they were to have an ongoing loving relationship in the present with God and the brethren, and had his beginning sometime in the past. So sometime in the past, you heard the gospel, you respond to the gospel, and then that change came through the Spirit of God. And you're walking with God, and you're to continue to be walking, growing, maturing, and developing in Christ Jesus, moving forward. From a child to a young adult to a mature Christian. That's adult. Saul said to Samuel, listen in 1 Samuel 15, 20-23. But I have obeyed the voice of the Lord and gone on the mission which the Lord has sent me. And I brought back Agag, the king of Amalek. And I have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But the people took of the plunder the sheep and the ox, the best of the things which should have been utterly destroyed to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. Then Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? It's a rhetorical question with only one answer. No. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. Listen carefully. And to heed than the fat of rams, for rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. It's obeying 
not the spirit of God, but the spirit of flesh and the God of this world. Like the spirit of witchcraft, the sin of witchcraft. And stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry because you have rejected the words of the Lord. He also has rejected you from being king. Wow. He tried to blame others for his sin instead of acknowledging and confessing. The Holy Spirit is here to convict us and to draw us to himself so that we can acknowledge our sin, confess our sin, and abandon our sin. And not justify our sin or blame others, but to be broken before him. Jesus said, he who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved of my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. John fourteen twenty one. The love of God in and through the believer is the basis of his and her faithfulness and loyalty to the truth of God's word. The love of God is and through the believer keeps him and, and her pursuing and protecting their fellowship with God. It's like that phone, you know, you drive through a hole and that, that call is dropped like a bad habit. And not until you get in the zone where there's some cell service are you connected again. That's what sin does to our relationship with God. If we regard iniquity in our heart, God does not hear us. Psalm 66, 18 says, Isaiah 59, 1 and 2. Paul tells us for the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet. And if there's any other commandment, all are all summed up in this single name. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does not harm to his neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Romans 13, 9 through 10. Because when you're loving with the love of God, you're doing unto others as you would have them unto you. And because you have the love of God, you're able to do this. Quite different from what we used to be in the world. We love those that was convenient. If I got something coming back, I can be nice. I can be polite. I can be very patient. The love of God is a priority, but it will never contradict or ignore the clear obedience to God's word. The love of God must be the motive behind the obedience of every commandment. Because God's not interested in what I do or how much I do. He's never impressed. He's pleased why and how I do it. It must be through God's love. John has told us the following. And this is the commandment that we should believe on the name of the Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he gave us commandments. 1 John 3, 23. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. 1 John 5, 2. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. 1 John 5, 3. Jesus said, But why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do the things I say? Luke six forty six. And so John had a passionate principle that love equates obedience. Simple. What husband or wife would believe their mate when they say, I love you, but they don't do anything that goes along with their obedience to their role as husband and wife. It's a contradiction, absolute contradiction. And so the response of John over the spiritual life of the church community has been characterized here by the threefold passion, a passionate joy. For those who were walking in the truth of the gospel, what a joy that is. A passionate plea that they love one another. Passionate principle that, they, that love equates obedience. And obedience is motivated by love. They go together. You can't escape. 
great little one chapter of this epistle. Lord, thank you for your love, your goodness. We love you. We thank you. We pray you continue to direct and guide us, Lord. And we thank you for your spirit that enables us to obey and to be filled with your love, Lord. Father, making a very clear distinction between what we were before and what we are now. Help us to yield to you and to depend on you, Lord. I pray for every person tonight. And Lord, if there's anyone here who doesn't know you, we pray you would speak to their hearts, that they would call on your name and repent from their sins, that you may save them. As you're praying, if you're here tonight, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, God has brought you here to be saved, to repent of your sins. Maybe you're over the internet. If you believe Jesus Christ is God, who became man, died for your sins, and rose from the dead, then you can call upon him. And regardless of what has happened, he says he will make a new creature of you. He will make you a son or a daughter of God by grace through faith. If this is your desire, this is your prayer of repentance. You can repeat and he will save you right now. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me, Lord, for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Fill me with your spirit. I accept you as my Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen.